everyone, and welcome to this episode of our Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson, joined by my colleague, lead advisor of Seven Investing, Matt Cochran. We are very excited to be joined this afternoon by two of our favorite guests out there in the investing community. Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer are the hosts of Chit Chat Money Podcast and also now the general partners of Arch Capital. Thanks, guys, for joining us here on the program for Seven Investing this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, uh, It's a pleasure. We'll talk about the podcast in a little bit because you guys have been running a fantastic podcast for quite some time. But I think the big news of this past month was was Arch Capital just recently launched. This is your own fund. Um, just at the 10,000 foot level, can you tell us about, about Arch and your approach that you have to investing there? Sure, sure. I'll take it. Um, so our it's a long only... Uh, pretty concentrated fund. We're aiming for like anywhere from eight to 15 companies. And uh, the reason that we have it kind of concentrated is uh, it's more manageable for us. We like to sort of know the companies pretty intimately. Um, and the more and more companies that you get, the harder it is to keep track of them. So we kind of try to keep it smaller. It's just easier for, easier for us to analyze it that way. Um, and then as far as the businesses go where it's not deep value cigar butt style it's more of uh, the great businesses at fair prices um, it's just easier to hold them for a long time that way um, and then yeah we're pretty valuation disciplined we get some slack for that sometimes uh, because we skew more towards value names sometimes um, but yeah it, Really, we're just looking for companies that are going to that are going to maximize free cash flow per share over a long term, over the long term, and our hurdle rate is sort of fifteen percent. So we typically, when we're analyzing a company, between Brett and I, we'll look at it and we'll go, you know, can this achieve a fifteen percent compounded annual growth rate over five years? And we don't care if it's lumpy or uh, the same every year. We're just looking for it fifteen uh, percent over a long term. Yeah, yeah, I guess just to add about the fund in general, uh, right now it's you know just family and friends. We're just kind of starting up. We hope to grow it over time, uh, but yeah, we have a, we hope our partners you know with us have a long term strategy or you know they want to be with us for the long term. We kind of have a time horizon of at least three to five years, similar to what you guys do at Seven Investing with your investments. Uh, so we want you know our limited partners to be with us for the long haul. That's kind of it. We don't run a complicated strategy at all. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really proprietary about our research, but we kind of just, we want to use that time arbitrage when, you know, investing and we want to just, I don't know, concentrate and uh, yeah, do what, do what we've been doing forever, but just, you know, with other uh, partners along with us now. Hey guys, Matt Cochran. Uh, let me, let me ask you about your fee structure because I, when I was like reading about your fund, like that's actually something that jumped out. I know we were just talking about it a little before the show too, but why don't you tell us about your fee structure and why you went uh, that way with it? Yeah, do you want me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So it's, uh, we don't have a management fee. We kind of, so as someone with no tr- official track record, we haven't been doing this for a long time. We didn't think it would be right to charge the two and 20. Uh, which would be the 2% management fee and then 20% of all profits. We kind of think that is a little old school and that the investment management community is leaning towards lower fees and getting paid for performance. Uh, So we decided uh, to have a 0% management fee. So nothing, you know, 
no flat fees like you would typically get from a hedge fund or something like that. But then we're doing a 33% performance fee. And the hurdle rate for the performance is the S&P 500. So for one year, so this is just assessed on the end of each year, uh, whatever the profits of the fund were in excess of the S&P 500, as managers, we take 33% of that. So we, we wanted to do that one because with the fund right now, we're not, that's not how we make a living. We have jobs writing for the Motley Fool. Uh, and that's kind of how we, you know, pay for rent, stuff like that. And we want to keep all of our investments in the fund. We don't want to get any distributions from that. So we're not trying to, you know, make money from it. It's not something with the short-term time horizon. So we wanted to align our investors' incentives with us so that, you know, we're only getting paid if they do well. We're only getting paid any sort of performance if they're doing better than the index funds they can invest in for free. Um, yeah. Anything else to run? And the other thing is, uh, Brett mentioned it. This is really a lot of family and friends. And so their uh, measurement stick is the S&P. A lot of them are indexing. Um, and so the way we view it is, you know, why should we be taking anything if we can't give them better than index performance? Um, because that's sort of what we have to beat. Uh, and we, we just think, it aligns well with investors. Uh, and then like Brett said, we're not relying on this money now. Obviously we want this to do well over the long term, uh, And hopefully we do end up generating some money from that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really just an easy way for us to uh, manage a portfolio, help family and friends beat the index, hopefully. Um, and then not, uh, not scrape them with fees along the way. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense, Ryan. I was reading up on the fund, you know, at, uh, at archcapitalfund.com. And Matt and I will chat about the individual companies in there with you in a minute. But um, I'd like to start, you, you were mentioning kind of the, the 15% kind of threshold that you want to beat. And reading up on your approach, I saw that you're actually going after a margin of safety first before you start looking at the growth of companies. Could you explain that investing approach of, of kind of how you decide what companies are going to go into this fund? Yeah, sure. I can take that one. So the margin of safety now, we stole that from like the deep valley or whatever uh, and stuff like that. And it's not really the traditional margin of safety for like a deep value investment. We just like that kind of framework. Uh, So we kind of, we ask ourselves every time we're making an investment, you know, what are the chances this loses money over the next three to five years? You know, it's never going to be zero. It's probably never a hundred percent, but whatever we put there, this, you know, it comes out of what their competitive advantages are, the predictability, all the stuff that goes into the quality of a business. Um, and, you know, we ask, well, can this investment work with multiple contraction? Is, you know, the valuation comes into play here. We really want to ask ourselves, are we going to lose money here or are, is there a chance for permanent drawdowns? So, I mean, that, it's just really important for us to start out with a margin of safety, because, you know, we kind of go with, all right, the first rule is if we're going to invest money is, all right, we don't want to lose it. Then we can focus on the compounding after, uh, but that's kind of our two-step process. So we kind of want to start with a margin of safety. All right, let's not lose money. And then next let's focus on, all right, how much can the investment compound over the long term? That's perfect. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I I would add to that. Um, sometimes when you hear margin of safety, people think about like liquidation value of a business. We're not, we're really not uh, 
investing in businesses that we hope are liquidating anytime soon. It's more just kind of worst case scenario. So we'll take uh, what we think the growth rate of cash flows will be over the next few years and we'll apply probably a conservative multiple to it and say like worst case scenario, what does this look like? Um, what is, uh, what does this mean for us? What kind of compound annual growth rate are we getting on it? Um, and we just, I think with the margin of safety, we just try to be conservative with our estimates uh, mm-hmm. as far as what the cash flows will be looking out. Yeah, that goes into it too. And I guess an example of a company we own uh, that is more leaning towards the margin of safety is someone like Sprouts Farmers Market. So they trade at like 11 times cash flow, which we think there's a margin of safety in that valuation where a lot of their competitors trade at you know high teens or in the 20s. And if the bet is successful, we're going to get multiple appreciation from this company and financial growth. So now all we have to do when investing in Sprouts Farmers Market, if we're right, is to analyze the business and ask ourselves, you know, how confident are we in the future growth? And we're, you know, that's not the style for everyone. Some people would lean to even more deep value. Some people would lean to higher growth, but that's just kind of the investments most of the time that we're, we're comfortable making. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll hand it to Matt. Uh, to ask about the individual companies in just a second here. But one more question from me is, uh, it's it's kind of refreshing to see a value fund right in the middle of today's market environment, right? Like everybody's <laughs> talking about GameStop and the, the valuations that are out there. I, I mean, do you guys have thoughts about kind of this current environment that we are in right now as investors? Yeah, do you want me to take this? Go ahead. Man. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, the majority of investors to us right now, and this is probably not all professional investors, but a lot of the individual investors we're seeing, I bet you guys see it a lot with, you know, maybe your subscribers when you're talking to them, you know, people kind of seem a little anxious, a little, I don't want to say it's all greed, but you know, there is that quote, you know, be greedy when others are fearful, be fearful when others are greedy. It feels like in pockets of the market, um, there's a lot of greed right now. I mean, if you look at valuations as a whole, they don't seem stretched, you know, especially with the FANG stocks. Uh, everyone talks about that, but there's kind of some pockets, you know, with SPACs, as we all know, and then some of those pre-revenue EV companies like electric vehicle companies. It seems to us that those are total, I mean, they're kind of total no-goes for us. We just hope to ignore them. We hope to have the discipline to ignore those. Um, and then kind of an indicator that I, I'm going to steal from a lot of other investors is that you know, when times are good, it seems like people's time horizons go to infinity, right? No one's thinking about the downside. Everyone's like, all right, well, this company in 2045 is going to be amazing. But then, you know, in March, it was kind of the opposite. Everyone's time horizon was like, all right, are they going to make cash payments next week? Right now, I think it's more of the opposite where people's time horizons are long. People aren't thinking about the downside a lot. Um, however, though, it's I mean, it's, it's fun to talk about this stuff, but to us, you know, the macro and the value, the, the overall market valuations, they rarely come into consideration when we consider, you know, making an investment. As long as we think the multiple and the future growth of the business is fine, um, I don't know. I think we're, we're comfortable investing whatever the overall valuations of the market are. Did yeah. I miss anything you're right? No, I, I think when we talk about like little micro bubbles where it's like one stock being pumped or like certain pockets of the industry that have uh, excessive multiples, I guess we could say um, it really has no influence on our portfolio. Like uh, if, if GameStop stock for some reason uh, like that event, I think Autodesk dropped like 7% the day that uh, GameStop went berserk. That has 
we'll use that as a buying opportunity because GameStop stock and those micro bubbles have no influence on the underlying operations at Autodesk business. So like if that happens and it presents buying opportunities, that's great. It is fun to watch from the sideline, but yeah, the, the, the overall market environment doesn't have a huge influence on the way we invest. Oh, love it guys. Um, so look, as you know, I'm your official podcast BFF. And uh, so as your official podcast BFF, I do think your, your podcast is awesome. I listen to it all the time. Uh, but like, you know, one of the things I like best that you guys did was the 25 stocks of Christmas. I love that. Uh, I just was curious, what were your, uh, what were your favorite pitches from that? Present company exclusive. Yeah, we'll say, we'll say uh, outside of you two, you, you guys did, uh, we love both of your shows. I mean, they both were one of the top uh, listened to ones, but outside of your guys, is, uh, Ryan, you want to go first with that? Yeah, I liked, uh, well, like all the presentations were really good. So I'll like focus on the businesses, but uh, Nelnet was really interesting. Uh, Jim Gillies presented that and it was just kind of probably one of the more unique names that we heard during it. And it was just an interesting situation there. It's kind of a, some of the parts valuation that we came to on it. Um, and then other ones, uh, BioLife Solutions, that was actually Austin's pick and their headquarters are like 10 minutes away from our office over here. So we might have a little bit of a home bias there, but that one was an interesting one. Uh, Autodesk, uh, we think that's kind of a forever business. So there were a lot of interesting ones. Um, I mean, uh, Chris from growth to value had a great pitch on C. I mean, you kind of, yeah. we kind of realized, you know, there's some people on there, like most, you know, someone like Chris, he knew the business so well that they're just fascinating to talk with them. Even if it, you know, C, it doesn't make it into our portfolios. I mean, I think we learned a lot about just you know, business in general and C limited. Yeah. We, uh, 25 stocks was a little hard to coordinate day after day, but sure, we want sure. to do something like that again. Definitely. Year, yeah. uh, it might be 12, it might be 12. Yeah. Maybe 12 stocks, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Yeah. It was, it was very fun. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So now the other question that you guys always ask your guests is like, what's a piece of traditional financial advice that you disagree with? So I want to flip the tables and ask you guys that what's something What's a traditional uh, piece of financial advice that you guys disagree with? You want me to go first or go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so this is actually your response. I think one of the times we asked it, but it was uh, well, guaranteed, individual investors. Like <laughs> in, people say individual investors can't beat the market um, or like the odds are stacked against them. And it's really difficult to do that. And I, I really disagree. I think they have a huge advantage. I, I think most people are referencing sort of that fund stat where when people try to actively manage, they tend to underperform the index. But especially now that we've launched a fund, we understand sort of the structural issues uh, of uh, trying to beat an index as a fund, which I mean, like some funds have diversification mandates, some funds uh, you have to, like you can't own something if you're not able to justify it to your LPs, uh, you're you might be paid on short-term performance. So you might say you're long, you have a long-term timeline or whatever, but then if you have a quarterly performance fee, obviously you're focused more on the short term. And so individual investors just really don't have a lot of those burdens. Uh, And I think it makes it a lot easier for them. They can have longer time horizons and just really own businesses that they like. And yeah, I would say, if you're an individual investor, I think you can beat the market. 
uh, like Matt said the first time we asked him it. And uh, yeah, don't be discouraged, I guess. Yeah. Right, Brett, you I'll can take one of my other answers. <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I don't know if this is uh, any of your guys' uh, – and I, this is not necessarily something I disagree with, but it's just not – I think our philosophy, which is buying quality at any price. Um, I don't know some people, you know, they're comfortable with buying stuff without considering valuation and that works a lot for whatever they're comfortable with, but that's just not something that can be, I don't know. It's just, I think that price matters uh, when investing in something, you know, a business can be perfect. Um, and then if it's trading at whatever, you know, whatever multiple doesn't make it reasonable, uh, you're not going to have good returns over the next, you know, wh- however many years. Um, so that's just something that I think that gets talked about a lot, uh, buying quality at any price. And that's just not not how I look at the market or or stocks in general. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And just one final question on the, your podcast, guys, which, again, I, I enjoy very much. But like, how did you guys meet up and decide to start doing a podcast? Like, well, what's the story behind that? Uh, we can. I mean, you guys uh, are. Wanna- you guys are pretty young and to get started like uh, this early and interested in investing. I mean, that's uh, man. Like I wish, I wish I was that young when I had started getting uh, interested, but yeah. How, how did that come about? Yeah, we were uh, actually, we were both uh, kickers at Washington state university. Uh, it's like out in Pullman um, backup kickers. And so uh, if you've ever watched a football practice and you see the kickers on the sideline, they have a lot of free time Uh and so we had a lot of free time, a lot of time to chat, a lot of time to, chat. <laughs> a lot of time to kind of talk about uh, stocks. And we just both kind of were interested. And then we were talking about it frequently, kind of every day. Then we're, maybe it was more of a learning curve for ourselves, but we're like, we should try to, I don't know, put a microphone down and maybe build an audience doing this. And, uh, and we kind of noticed that there weren't many at the time, like two years ago, there weren't that many out there. There was like a best, like the best, there was some Motley Fool ones. And then there was probably masters in business. Now, yeah. now there's a lot more, uh, which is great. But back then we kind of were like, all right, I mean, there's only a few shows each week. Uh, I mean, there's definitely rooms, so you don't add something there. Yeah. And for the first year, it was like, just, there really weren't any listeners other than like, parents and friends that you like ask to listen. Uh, but then slowly we started to, you know, meet people on Twitter, have interviews, just DM guys people. like you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it got really fun for us cause we were learning along the way. We were able to interview people and get great insights. It gave us probably access to people that maybe we wouldn't have had, have had access to. Um, and yeah, over time, I would say for a year, we were pretty much talking to ourselves, but after that, it kind of started to grow much faster. And then it, uh, it kind of has network effects. I guess you could say more and more people listen it, more and more people share. Um, and it just grows a lot faster. Oh, that's great guys. But next time just say you were football players. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, just say, Hey, we're on the football really team. Count, but, but yeah, the joke else. we used to do is if someone like at, used to ask like, Oh, you play on the football team what position? And we'd always joke and say like, Oh, defensive line. And then see if they, uh, <laughs> see if left they, tackle. Uh, yeah. Left tackle. Something like that. Uh, right. then we can tell if they actually know anything about, about football, but no, yeah. Kicker is a, it's a unique, uh, it's a unique endeavor. Sure. sure. Hey, I would also like clarification on the podcast BFF. Was that something that Matt Cochran made up or is that a real it thing? It is not made up. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's real. It is yeah, real. He's, been on, he's been on five times. Uh, so Simon, you're gonna have to catch up with him. I think you've been on two or three. I think three now. So yeah, Matt, we're sending you a coffee mug. 
Chit chat <laughs> money. CCN BFF is going to be the new cop. You're, you're going to let him catch up to me? <laughs> like, yeah. like, I, <laughs> I thought this was uh, like a title I could hold. Well, we'll see. I, uh, we'll see. I did want to ask one more thing about your, your podcast, and that is, you know, in addition to doing the interviews, like you said, with, with your BFFs out there, you guys are also doing a lot of fundamental analysis. Um, I saw, I think, recently you're doing Wix.com was one of the most recent ones you had. But how do you how do you pick those companies that you want to analyze for the for the podcast? Is there a, a filter or a screen that you use or is it just companies you're interested in? Yeah, it's uh, sometimes they get pitched to us, which are really nice. That's sort of like the like we when we pitch to potential investors for the fund we have like a little funnel diagram and at the top of the funnel it's people pitching us ideas and we use sort of the fundamental analysis show as our filter um that's kind of our screener we're looking at the business what it does uh, put in yeah two to about two hours of research or something like that you know get the basics down and uh but sometimes it's pitched to us sometimes we just come across it on twitter or uh i don't know i we don't have like one particular way of sourcing ideas, uh, but yeah, it, it's really fun. It helps us turn over a lot more rocks. Uh, I think yep. uh, if we weren't doing those shows regularly, we might have, we might go through weeks where we don't have to talk about any specific company and this kind of forces us to do some research. So Yeah. And there's no real screen or anything. I mean, mainly I, I just get like, a, I have a little queue of stuff that I kind of want to look at. And mainly it's just from Twitter. All right. Some smart account tweets a ticker. It doesn't mean we're like buying it or anything, but all right, that's just going to go in the queue in the queue and uh, we'll research it later. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I love it. I mean, this is empowering individuals to be investors, to get more involved with the process and kind of see what you guys see in the research side of it too. I love that you guys put that in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, if anyone has any uh, pitches, feel free to yeah. know, send them over on Twitter. We'd love to look at more businesses. So. Yeah, and then we kind of look at, we we thought of it too, like with the deep dive, you know, we do with Ian and the fundamental analysis one. Uh, we see in like YouTube and a lot of, uh, mainly YouTube and TikTok, I guess, too. Um, a lot of the younger <laughs> investors, they kind of do the, they're not really doing the real like analysis. And we thought, all right, there, there's a lot of room for this out there where people want the actual fundamental analysis done. Um, and we're not going to do the research for someone, but it's better than just reading off the three earnings and then looking at the stock chart kind right, of deal. Right. Um, and there's a lot of that out there. And we thought we can mix it up with something different. So on that note, let's let's talk about a few stocks um, in your fund. Uh, three of your largest holdings are Nintendo, uh, Electronic Arts, EA and Activision. Um, so I'm going to. I'm I'm gonna assume that you guys see something in the gaming industry that you think maybe is undervalued or uh, what about those three names and what about that industry like has your guys' attention? You wanna go? Uh, Yeah, I think gaming broadly has a pretty bright future and I don't think that's a super unique take. I think a lot of people have talked about the metaverse and it's kind of become consensus that people are spending more and more time on these games. Uh, But we did look at each of these businesses we looked at independently. Uh, It wasn't just like we don't usually take a bet on an industry as much as like it's more company specific where although EA and Activision, the thesis is pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nintendo's a little more unique. I mean, I can, I can dive into why we like Nintendo and it's yeah. actually one of the largest holdings for us. Um, and the yeah, primary, that. that's a, that's not a discussed name. So I would, I would love to hear that. Perfect. It's yeah. We just think it's more permanent than it used to be. And part of that is uh, 
people have used the term decyclified. So if you saw an, if you look at Nintendo stock chart in 2008, 2009, it peaked and then came right back down. And that was right around the Wii uh, when the Wii became really popular and it was going through these sort of ebbs and flows of uh, as the consoles became popular, it'd go through uh, really a, a period of really good times. Um, but as it fell out of favor, uh, obviously profits would decrease and they'd lose a lot of money and then the game development was less lucrative and so they they'd go through those different cycles but now the the account is tied to nintendo uh the company and not the actual hardware so uh whereas the wii you kind of had to restart the installed base so the switch it's more you're getting just newer iterations of the hardware kind of like the iphone ecosystem where you can but for just, longer time periods, you know, like three, four right. years, something like that. And so it's just like we saw it with the uh, Switch and then the Switch Lite, and there's rumors about uh, a next-gen sort of Switch console. I think people have called it the Switch Pro before. Uh, but basically it's just uh, you don't have to restart that entire installed base, um, and then that makes game development uh, more exciting. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more third-party developers build for the Switch. We're seeing that in EA's uh, conference calls. I think Fortnite's on Switch platform yeah, as well Fortnite now. Fortnite and Apex Legends just, or Fortnite's been on there for a while. And then Apex Legends is getting added in March, I believe. So we're seeing a lot of third-party development too. And that's the thing with the software is kind of a big indicator with that is with the Wii. And I know this is a little bit anecdotal, but for example, you know, when I was a kid playing the Wii, uh, you played the Wii Sports game. You may have bought like two things, but then it kind of just went away. You didn't, you didn't consistently buy the software title. But with the Switch, we're seeing a lot more consistency with the software titles. Um, they don't put out as many as like Activision or EA. They're a lot more selective. Um, they're not putting stuff out every year, but the you know the orders for that is a lot more consistent, which kind of indicates to us that the Switch has more staying power than something like the Wii and especially the Wii U. And there's also... Uh... I think of the top 10 grossing brands, media brands, uh, nine out of the 10 are either Nintendo or Disney. Um, number one is Pokemon. I te- that's technically not uh, owned entirely by Nintendo, but Nintendo has like a 33% stake for sure. Uh, maybe more. They're a little, they're a little secretive with that, but the brands, sometimes people overuse the word optionality, but it does give them a lot of optionality. Um, And that's where it gets the Disney comparison because they have built out that park. They're building out more parks. They're doing movies, you know, they can build mobile games off of it, merchandise, stuff like that. And it's kind of like that. uh, I think Buffett quoted it once. It's like you've extracted all the oil and then it seeps back down and you can extract it again because you have that brand. Uh, How many different Mario Kart iterations has there been? they can just go right back to the same brand. They don't have to spend all the time trying to build new uh, kind of uh, Mm -hmm. content like that. Yeah. And then lastly on this applies to the gaming in general, because this is really why, uh, well, it's just a point of why we like Nintendo EA and Activision is that the the gaming market is more moving to 90% plus digital downloads. We think that it'll be 90% plus digital downloads, which we, uh, the, I don't know, the impact on operating margins isn't, It's a, we don't know the exact, you know, number for that, but it's estimated to be like around a 6%, you know, leveraged for operating margin, which is fantastic. And it just improves the profitability of the business. And we think with Nintendo, they're only at like 40% or so digital downloads compared to someone like Activision and EA, which are closer to 70 and 80%. 
And we think over time, that's just going to get to, you know, double that. Um, and the operating margins are going to be just fantastic as long as they can continue selling those, uh, you know, gaming titles. It's, it's like also that. really cheap. I, I know it shows my age, but every time I think of Nintendo and like you're talking about digital downloads, I just think of those cartridges for the Nintendo 64, which is my last yeah. impression of Nintendo. But uh, yeah. Uh, what are you going to say about the valuation there? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really cheap. So I guess that's another exciting part to it. Um, we love the business, but I think the enterprise value is like 12 times operating profits. And this is, yeah, you got to X out. So I think they have 14 and a half billion in cash in US dollars. So you X out that. And then there's what the, um, the enterprise. Own- yeah, it's kind of a hard calculation, actually, because they're so secretive with some of their investments and stuff. But yeah, we we uh, we estimated the enterprise value to be uh, like, what was it, 55 billion, somewhere yeah, in there? Yeah, 58, 55 billion, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's trading at definitely discount uh, compared to some of its competitors. And mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, we, we just like the business overall. I know you guys mentioned their intellectual property and I know, or in the past, it may be my impression's wrong, but I think they've been very uh, like guarded with that. Like they don't like to like license like Mario out to have like a big movie made by a studio, you know, or, uh, or like a Zelda movie. Like, do you think that'll change and like open up additional revenue streams in the future? Or uh, like, how do you, do you, do you think like, I guess like they'll unleash all that potential there or is it like more important for them to protect the brand and protect that IP? Uh, yeah, I can take that one. So they are very protective. Uh, at least now they're very protective with their gaming. So they want all the Mario stuff. If it's not mobile, mobile's a little different. It's kind of just a customer acquisition tool. It's not really that meaningful to the business, but they want all the gaming you know, interactions with Mario or Zelda or whatever to be on the Switch or, you know, whatever, the Switch Lite or whatever. But with anything that's not gaming, they're actually partnering with, um, you know, studios or just any other company. So it's a lot different than Disney because they're actually building the Super Nintendo worlds, which are the theme parks. They're partnering with Universal. So Universal is building those out and there's going to be four of them worldwide. So I think with that, they're not being secretive and like protective of the IP assets. And then they actually have a movie planned. I think it's called Super Mario something, something along those lines. And it's coming out in 2022. It might be delayed because of COVID, but sure. they're partnering, I think, with Illumina Studios or no, that's the that's the G.I. company or uh, one of those. But <laughs> so now it's going to get really interesting, Brett. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was thinking of Simon with that. about it's a called, partnership. It's an it's, it's a animation studio uh, and... They're, they're partnering with them. So with non-gaming stuff, they're actually trying to expand. Uh, but with what they know, you know, gaming hardware, gaming software, they want to keep that first party. You, you feel and like they, a Zelda movie would be amazing. Like if they did it right. Oh, yeah. 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 If yeah, they yeah. did it right. Yeah. Because they, they, they yeah. really flopped with a Mario movie in the 90s, but the technology wasn't there. Now, you know, with the animation technology out there, we think it has a lot of potential. Yeah. Sure. That's really neat. I mean, like you wonder how much of that optionality is still not being appreciated by the market, right? I mean, like it's stuff like that, that nobody's, no, I mean, did you say there was a Nintendo world that they were developing right now? Yeah. So that is opening, it was supposed to open in Tokyo with the Olympics, but again, it got delayed with COVID. I think it's just opened in, uh, yeah. In, or I don't even know if it's in Tokyo, it's in Japan, but they, they have this theme park. It's only three rides now and a couple other interactive places to play. So they're going to slowly build that out. Um, and then they also have one going in California and one in Florida and then one in Singapore. 
Um, and they hope to slowly build these out to have rides. I think they have a Mario Kart ride. Uh, they have a Koopa Cup ride, something like that. They want all their brands to be at these places so families can go and interact with them. Uh, and yeah, they, it's not going to be as big as Disneyland, but it's kind of like a, we think of it as kind of like a better Legoland or something like that for, for Nintendo. And it's a place that families are going to want to take their kids. Yeah. And it, once again, it just plays into the permanence of the business. Like that is a lot more permanent than simply uh, gaming consoles. And uh, yeah, it, it, you can go, I think they have a video of uh, someone walking through the super mm-hmm. nintendo land it's really cool it looks a lot of fun uh and there is the nostalgia factor for a lot of the older people that haven't played nintendo in a while that's um, what i'm talking about yeah, yeah instead of just families and their kids this is a corporate retreat for seven investing matt are you ready for a road trip out there <laughs> they said uh, there's one opening in florida so <laughs> yeah there, there is one that's going to be in florida uh before they say before 2025 so we know you guys have a lot of people down there maybe that could be a, a nice little retreat i i think so i think so we're there i i one last thing before we move on i wanted to ask what you guys think about augmented reality because you know pokemon go just kind of caught the world by storm and then everybody was playing this game and then it just seemed like it kind of disappeared again it, do, you, do you think that augmented reality is a is a fad that is going away or is this more of a long-term trend that Nintendo is going to tap into in the next year or two? Uh, definitely. They're definitely going to tap into it. Uh, they One, they own a 20% stake at least in Niantic. Uh, so they have some exposure to that with that investment. And I don't know about on the gaming side, uh, they have anything proprietary yet. I would just hope in the next you know few years they come out with something. But with the Mario Kart ride at Super Nintendo World is actually you know, has augmented reality goggles, which we think can be pretty cool and a very immersive experience for, you know, the audiences there. So they have nothing huge planned right now, but we think that they definitely have, there's indicators that they're investing in it, right? Yeah. And the Pokemon Go thing was like, it's a little bit removed from Nintendo because it's through Niantic uh, and technically Nintendo doesn't totally own Pokemon. And I think does Pokemon, so the Pokemon company, I believe also has a stake in Niantic. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a kind of a web of companies owning each other, but yeah. But yeah, you're right. Uh, The, that's just another example of they can just build on the brands uh, with, with the new technology and they don't have to restart and build an entirely different media company or something like that. They can just use Mario or Pokemon and then uh, just play off the uh, AR or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then uh, just before we go, you know, you guys are looking at stocks all all the time, um, not only for your show and for the podcast, but also for the fun now. I mean, what's one company from each of you that's that's on your radar, either that you've invested in right now or you're potentially interested in the future? Yeah, I'll hit one that is on, I would say, both of our watch lists. We try to, you know, we try to have companies that, you know, maybe like 15 or 20 that are on our watch list that we think is kind of, you know, are kind of overvalued or something, you know, they're obviously going to be quality companies if they're, they're overvalued or, you know, probably a quality company. And we're just kind of waiting for that moment where there's that drawdown, hopefully that drawdown, but one of those is Axon Enterprises. So that was one that we hope to get into the fund, but right now um, it just, I don't know, the valuation just doesn't feel like it's there for us, but they're the maker of like tasers and they're kind of, we will, why we like the company so much is they're transitioning to enterprise software 
through a SaaS model for law enforcement agencies. So they have this hardware software integration. So they start out with tasers and they also have body cameras, right? Which are kind of growing a lot because of the issues with police and basically every police department wants those right now or mandated to have those. And then they have other stuff that they're hard aware. It's integrated into what's called evidence.com. Um, and that allows police departments to like kind of manage their evidence from the cloud. And they have all these other things that are kind of integrated into these bundles that they sell to law enforcement agencies for like as much as $300 a month per police officer. So these bundlings of services gives them what we believe is a competitive advantage because no other company can offer, you know, someone can make a taser, maybe someone can make some sort of evidence management system, but they can't connect them together like Axon does. So that's why they're winning so many contracts. Um, we're really confident in their continued growth because they essentially have, they have very minimal comp- competition. They may have a few competitors with, you know, some software, some back office stuff, but again, the existing software for back, for uh, law enforcement, the from what we've read online and all the reviews and stuff is quite poor and could see some improvements. So we think they have a lot of potential there. Um, but right now, I mean, they're trading at, I think, 17 times sales, which is a bit rich, and they do a lot of share-based compensation. So it's a company we like, but it's, uh, it's, it's staying on the watch list for now. Anything else for that, Ryan? Or? No, uh, I would say the one on my watch list is probably Naked Wines. Uh, it's a company that I think Brett and I both liked. Uh, it feels a little bit like Stitch Fix for wine, if that makes sense. But you, you can go on, you can, uh, you can go to Naked Wines. I think it's nakedwines.com. Pick your wines, have them delivered to you. There's like a $100 coupon if you buy something for 160 So you get a lot of money off. I recommend doing it. It's a lot of fun. But um, there's about, you can subscribe. So I think it's $40 a month to subscribe. And then you're called an angel. And they use that money to front the cost for the winemakers. Uh, that way the winemakers can know going in. Uh, they, not only do they get the money to uh make their wine, but then they know going in that they're going to have sales, the logistics is taken care of, the delivery. Um, and apparently like all the distribution stuff, apparently that's like the biggest problem for a lot of winemakers. So they're kind of solving both sides of it. Um, I think right now they have 750,000 subscribers. They were born, right, yeah. yeah, they were born out of uh, Majestic Wines, was like, which was like a traditional sort of wine retail store in the UK. Um, but they just continued to grow and grow and eventually they sold off majestic wines and now they're just solely naked wines. Um, and they're really going after the USA, which they say is like their biggest potential market. They've the CEO left the old CEO. Um, and he actually had a really good interview. I I, I don't know what the link is, but, uh, it's worth reading. He's still a big shareholder. He's super optimistic about the business. It's just kind of a really unique situation. That sounds good. Like I know uh, Naked Wines, that's a smaller market cap, right? Isn't that a, like, a, is it $600, $700 million there? Yeah, it's, it's sub $1 billion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, some great companies to put on your watch list there. Once again, Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer, the hosts of Chit Chat Money, which you can check out their podcast. There's also a website, chitchatmoney.com. Uh, they are also just recently launched Arch Capital. So the general capitals of, of Arch Capital Fund, and that is archcapitalfund.com. And um, yeah, guys, thanks very much for, for joining us here on our seven investing podcast here this afternoon. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. Really enjoyed the chat.
Well, on behalf of my colleague, uh, Matt Cochran, lead advisor of Seven Investing and also the BFF of the Chit Chat Money podcast, and I'm planning Simon to Erickson. hold that planning to hold that title. <laughs> the humble brag. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in for this episode of our Seven Investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future through Seven Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.